Please turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 17. We'll be looking at verses 14 through 21, but just before we read those and begin thinking about those, remember that every text has a context, okay? and a helpful thing for you in your Bible study is to always notice the context of a passage that you're looking at. Uh, so you want to look at what comes before and after the text, think about where it is in the book that, that it's found, think about where it is in the uh, unfolding revelation of God that we see in Scripture. And so we'll be uh, reminded that uh, this chapter opened with that incredible narrative of the transfiguration. And, and I want you to contrast that scene in those opening verses that we looked at last Lord's Day, I want you to contrast that scene with what we read in our text today. Think about the differences. Uh, think about the differences in location, characters, in the mood, in the theme. And think about what's similar as well. Okay, we're going to sort of compare and contrast these passages a little bit to begin with, and I think we'll find that helpful. So let's, uh, let's give ourselves over to God's Word, Matthew chapter 17, verses 14 through 20. And when they came to the crowd, a man came up to him and, kneeling before him, said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is an epileptic, and he suffers terribly. For often he falls into the fire, and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples, and they could not heal him. Jesus answered, O oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked him, and the demon came out of him, and the boy was healed instantly. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, Because of your little faith. For truly I say to you, If you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. Well, what do you notice in terms of the differences there? See the difference in location? What's the difference in location? If you young people want to point that out for us. Well, from the top of the mountain, we've gone to the bottom of the mountain, right? And think about the other contrast here. From the glory that we saw on the top of the mountain, that shining radiance as for, for a few moments, the veil of, of Jesus' humanity was, was, was parted just a little bit, and the glory of his divinity shone out. And, and that scene where, where the supernatural cloud of light appeared, God the Father spoke those words of pleasure in the Son, from, from that marvelous scene, that, 
that, that so overwhelmed the disciples that they, they were terrified with a holy fear. Now we come down to the darkness of human life, don't we? From glory to tragedy. And the glory of the revelation of God in Jesus Christ to the tragedy of the effects of human sin in the life of this boy and in the grief of his father. What, what a change, isn't it? I, I think we're meant, meant to be taken aback a little bit by that. I, I think that's why Matthew has juxtaposed these, these stories so closely. He, he wants us to notice that. And, and while we shouldn't interpret most scriptures allegorically, I don't think we're supposed to to read the Bible as an allegory as tended to be the case in medieval times, but, but I think there's nothing wrong with seeing some imageries here, a, some types, some, some representations of the gospel. For did not the Lord of glory lay aside that glory and come down to a fallen world. And so as Jesus descends this mountain into this scene of tragedy, of suffering, of sorrow, I think we see a picture of our Lord who laid aside his glory and came down for you came down to you in your sin, in your suffering, in your sorrow, came to do something about it, came to bring healing and life. Isn't that a wonderful, wonderful thing to think on in, in this passage? That the God that we love did not spare his own son, that one whom he was so pleased in, that one whom he approved fully and completely. He yet let his son walk down that mountain knowing that he was walking to suffering and death for your sake. Gospel's all over the place here, isn't it? <laughs> How can we not be moved by that? Well, let's follow uh, through this, this, uh, this passage. And I, I think you may have noticed as well the theme of this passage. If the theme of the previous passage, the transfiguration scene, if the, if the theme of that passage was the glory of Jesus then don't you think the theme of this passage, the way Matthew has been inspired to write it, the theme is faith. You perhaps notice the progression as we went through this passage. Unbelief, little faith, and faith to do the impossible. 
That's an amazing progression, isn't it? But it's right there. It's the same, uh, same Greek word that occurs in, in all these places. So let's pay particular attention to that as we go through this passage as well. Well, they, they come down the mountain, and one of the differences in terms of the characters, in terms of what's going on, of course, is you've got the crowd here. We're back to the crowd. We had just the three disciples as witnesses at the top of the mountain. Now the multitude is there. And they're going to have a role to play in this scene. Uh, they come crowding in, and out of that crowd comes this, comes this distraught father. Uh, what, a, what a moving scene on a Father's Day, isn't it? This distraught father has found no one in the crowd to help him. Not even the disciples have been able to help him. His son, perhaps, perhaps this is his only son. Maybe he's a single father. There's no mention of the mother here. It's possible maybe she's home with other children. But in the scene, we just have this, this grieving father distraught over his son. That's what he asked for mercy for. He doesn't say, have mercy on me. You notice that? Have mercy, my son. My son means far more to me, the father says, than I do myself. Have mercy on my son. For he is grievously afflicted. He uses the strongest possible language here to describe his son's condition. This boy is having continual convulsions, repeated convulsions, sometimes life-threatening even. He is sorely afflicted. Perhaps the father doesn't even know why. Probably he doesn't. Maybe he's tried to get help from healers of that day to no avail. And so he comes as a last resort to this manual labor turned preacher who he's heard about. This is his last, last hope. If he can't get help for his son here, it's hopeless. But how glad we are to see him come to Jesus. Because we know, we know he will get the help he needs. We know he will find mercy. Because here is a merciful Savior and Lord. So it's really God who's led him here, isn't it? I'm sure he thanked God for the rest of his life. God in his providence led him to Jesus. And so he cast himself at his feet. He's, he's not proud, too proud to get down on the ground, to kneel for this one and ask for his help. So after he explains the situation, verse 17, we might think, well, Jesus is going to deal with this right away. He, he often does that. I mean, we see him on occasion. He'll, he'll heal even before he's been asked. You know, you, uh, very often there's, there's an immediacy to his response, and yet he doesn't. So Matthew's telling us something here. And God is telling us something here in his word. Instead of addressing the, the man or the boy, he turns to the crowd. 
debatable whether or not he's including the, the disciples here, but I think we're to understand that, that this is to the crowd. This is an address to this generation. You remember hearing that expression before in, in Matthew? And this is a harsh word, isn't it? Oh, faithless and twisted generation. There's only one other time that little beginning O is used in the Gospel of Matthew for emphasis. Interestingly enough, you heard it used when Jesus spoke to that Canaanite woman. Remember that Canaanite woman that came to him interceding for her daughter who was demon-possessed? And, and remember after the interchange, we won't go all the way through it, uh, again, you'll remember it, I'm sure. But he says, oh, lady, how great is your faith. To that Canaanite, to that woman, to that foreigner. And now he turns to his people. The, these are Jews for the most part. And he says the opposite. Oh, faithless generation. Now, now, that's not to downplay the fact that there were those people who believed, responded with faith. I mean, the disciples left everything and followed him. I mean, we're, 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 not, we're not saying here that, that absolutely no one responded, but John tells us in the beginning of his gospel, doesn't he, that Jesus came to his own, and his own received him not. The dominant response of his generation was to reject his message and reject him. They refused to listen to his call to repentance. They refused to acknowledge him as king. Faithless and twisted generation, he said. It's not a coincidence, I don't think, that he's echoing words out of Deuteronomy. Moses, in a prophetic word, Pictures the people of Israel. That God is rescued out of slavery with incredible miracles. He's brought them into freedom. And they turn from him. Moses says this in Deuteronomy 32, verses 4 through 5. The rock, he calls God the rock over and over again in this, in this uh, prophecy. His work is perfect. For all his ways are justice, a God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. That's how God's been to his people. But Moses goes on to say, they, his people, have dealt corruptly with him. They are no longer his children because they are blemished. They are a crooked and twisted generation. Exactly the words that Jesus uses here. He castigates, Moses castigates the, the nation later on in chapter 32. You were unmindful of the rock that bore you. You forgot the God who gave you birth. Yahweh saw it and spurned them because of the provocation of his sons and his daughters. And he said, I will hide my face for them. I will see what their end will be. For they are a perverse generation, children in whom there is no faithfulness. 
And the Lord that is Yahweh said to Moses in Numbers 14, 11, How long will this people despise me? And how long will they not believe me in spite of all the signs that I've done among them? Jesus responds with the same words. Jesus, the prophet, foreshadowed by Moses. The incarnation of Yahweh declares his exasperation. He is exasperated here, I think. I don't think he's saying this in a flat tone. I don't think we're wrong to ascribe emotion to our Lord in his earthly ministry. He's exasperated with them. He's frustrated with them. And with good reason. Like their forefathers, they've despised his call to repentance and disbelieved him despite the signs that he's given them. And of course, this isn't the first time he's rebuked this generation. We could go back to Matthew chapter 11. He rebukes them because they... They rejected John because they didn't like his style. They rejected Jesus because they didn't like the way he was. Matthew chapter 12, he, he rebukes them as an evil and adulterous generation because they're seeking a sign. They want some kind of show. Despite all the signs he's done, they want some kind of you know, show in the sky or something like that. He rebukes them and says there's going to be no sign. And he repeats this in Matthew 16 as well. There's going to be no sign given to this nation except the sign of the prophet Jonah. And of course, there he means his own death and resurrection. It's an evil generation. An unbelieving. And twisted generation. They're twisted in their thinking. That's what's meant by that. They think crookedly. Their lack of faith leads them to wrong, wrong way of thinking. What mighty works God has done in our generation, in this generation. Think about it. The sign of Jesus' death and resurrection has been proclaimed in the gospel to this generation. God has made his word more available to this generation than any generation before. By his Spirit's work, the preaching and teaching of the gospel is more easily obtained than for any previous generation. God has given this generation more earthly wealth and more freedom to worship and serve him. And he has given this generation more warnings of hell to come and invitations to seek heaven above. Will not this generation be condemned just as Jesus condemned his? As an unbelieving, twisted generation, the more this generation refuses to live, to believe, I'm sorry, the more this generation refuses to believe, the more twisted their thinking becomes. People would rather think nonsense today in our generation than to believe God's word. They believe lies. They tell one another lies. They would rather believe in themselves. Can you believe that? They would rather believe in themselves, earthly beings who did not create themselves and will live only a short time. They would rather believe in themselves than in the eternal God. That's how twisted their thinking is. 
Ironically, their twisted thinking leads them to reject the very truth of God that would relieve their suffering. Just as the people in Jesus' hometown, remember that scene earlier in Matthew? They refused to believe him. They'd rather not believe him than to have him heal their sick. Things haven't changed much, have they? Paul reminds us that we live in a fallen world and so we continue to live in the midst of a human culture that is crooked and twisted in its thinking. He says this in Philippians chapter 2, Do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ, that's the day of judgment, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Sadly, Paul warns the Ephesian elders that out of their own group, out of those who are elders in the church, are going to arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Do you not believe that's happened in our, in our generation? That there are not pulpits today where twisted and perverse things are preached under the guise of Christianity. Jesus is totally accurate in his assessment, isn't he? But their unbelief, isn't it great that their unbelief and this word of judgment does not prevent him from immediately healing this, this boy. And so with just a word, it would seem, a word of rebuke to this demon, Jesus grants him full and complete healing that very moment. What a contrast. The unbelief the twisted thinking of the generation, and Jesus' compassion and healing power. Well, Mark, Matthew doesn't really focus that on that so much as the other gospel writers do because he wants to keep us on this theme of faith. And so he goes right to, a bit later it would seem, when the disciples approach, to Jesus, approach Jesus when they're with him alone and say, why couldn't we cast it out? Why do they ask this question? <laughs> That's, it seems rather self-centered. Maybe what they should have said would be something like, we are sorry that we could not help this boy. We really regret that he had to suffer a moment longer because of our impotence. In fact, maybe they, would have, they should have asked Jesus for their forgiveness. We, we confess, Lord, we failed here. We failed you. You sent us out to heal the sick and cast out the demons, and we didn't do it. Maybe they should ask forgiveness of this father, this poor father. Well, we don't know exactly what's in their head. But we know what Jesus thinks because he tells them in the next verse, verse 20. 
Here's your problem. You're a little faith. You're a little faith. John Bunyan uses that idea of little faith uh, repeatedly in Pilgrim's Progress. That would be one reason for you to read that if you haven't read it. Uh, because there are, there are a lot of characters in, in Pilgrim's Progress that represent the person with little faith. Uh, people like Mr. Fearing, you know, always afraid of things. Well, let's think about little faith from Jesus' perspective because he's talked about that before as well. Back in the Sermon on the Mount, you remember? Jesus identified little faith people with people that were anxious. Anxious about your life, he said. What you will eat, what you will drink. About your body, what will you put on. About how long you're going to live. Adding a single hour to your span of life. And he says, what's with you, you people of little faith? <laughs> Don't you think God is going to provide for you? Or there's the episode we read about in, in, in Matthew chapter 8. Jesus has told his disciples they're going to cross the lake. They get in the boat and go, and these seasoned fishermen been on the water far much more, many more times than he has, and yet a storm arises, and they get scared, and in fact, they, they wake him up. He's trying to get some rest, and they wake him up and say, we're dying, we're perishing. He says, why are you afraid, O oh, you of little faith? You think God can't get you to the other side of the lake? You think he's not with you? in this storm? Or there's the episode in Matthew chapter 14 where Jesus came walking on the water and Simon Peter decided to get into the act and so he asked Jesus to, to call him to walk on the water and so he gets out of the boat and starts walking and well, he sees the wind, sees the waves, gets scared begins to sink and cries out, Lord, save me. Spurgeon says on this, in commenting on this, what does he think? Jesus is going to let him drown in front of him? <laughs> Doesn't he know Jesus is going to save it? Why, is, why does he have to panic like this? And so Jesus says, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Little faith people fail to persevere. Fail to persevere in their faith. Start out good sometimes, but they, they get worried about their earthly conditions. Matthew 16, he uses the phrase again. It's been pointed out that Matthew points out the lack of faith among the disciples more than any of the other Gospels. It's interesting that he does that, being a disciple himself, isn't it? A real mark of his humility there. Matthew chapter 16, Jesus is trying to teach him a spiritual lesson. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, Sadducees. And he's trying to use a metaphor that they can understand. They know what leaven is. They know what it's affecting bread. So he's trying to put it down on their level. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. What do they do? They start thinking about bread. They're so spiritually obtuse, they miss the metaphor. And think, oh, he means we, we didn't pick up any bread before we left. 
we better get some, but avoid the Pharisees and Sadducees store. <laughs> Jesus says, oh, you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? I just fed 5,000. You think I'm worried about having bread? And finally they get it. He's, he's talking about the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Little faith people are often thinking about earthly things so much that they miss the spiritual truths that God has for them. So that's little faith people, but isn't it something of a paradox here? I'll see what you think. He, he goes on to say, truly, that's his word, amen. He's amening what he's about to say before he says it, okay? He's not counting on an amen from them. He's given one before he says it. Amen, I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed. Now, a grain of mustard seed is pretty small. Does, does it strike you as sort of ironic the way it does me that he's rebuking them for a little faith and then just says, yes, you need a little faith. <laughs> I think that, that in using this hyperbole, if you had just the faith of a mustard seed, you could move a mountain. I, I think maybe he's, he's communicating here that it's not so much the quantity that I, I, I'm trying to get you guys to understand. It's not that you need to just take your kind of little faith and make it bigger. I think he's implying you need a different quality of faith. You need a different kind of faith, perhaps. Maybe great faith is not just the little faith the disciples made bigger. Maybe what makes faith great is what is the object of that faith? Where is that faith placed? And what is the ground of that faith? What is the basis of that faith? Uh, I'm, I'm going to suggest that the basic question that this text raises for you is who am I trusting? Am I trusting myself or God? Because I think ultimately every person trusts in one or the other. Now we may talk about having faith in things. Okay, Susan flew home uh, late last night, and you could say, well, she trusted the plane, okay, or she trusted the pilots, or the uh, air traffic controllers, or something like that. So we can say, well, well, we're trusting things. I'm trusting this podium. It's not going to collapse under me. But you know what I'm really trusting is I'm trusting my, my judgment that this is able to hold me. Okay, I'm trusting my perception based on my understanding of what little it is of flying. And based on my small experience in flying, I believe that I'm going to arrive where I should arrive. So I'm going to suggest that 
we live our lives in one of those modes, either that mode of trusting ourselves, what we think, what we can figure out, and, and we may pray to God, but he's sort of the, the last resort, okay? He, he's sort of the, the, the Hail Mary pass that we throw uh, when we're in over our heads. But most of the time, we're living pretty much trusting ourselves. Maybe that's what happened with these disciples. You notice the way they phrase their question. Why couldn't we cast it out? (laughs) Maybe that's a dead giveaway. Because they thought they could do it in and of themselves. Well, the opposite of that, of course, is faith that is placed in the reliable place in God himself. That's the kind of faith that we're talking about here. That's mountain-moving faith. It takes me back to Zechariah chapter 4. Zechariah chapter 4, he's speaking to God's people. They're they're trying to rebuild their lives there in Jerusalem. They come back from the exile. Things are not going well. As you can imagine, trying to rebuild a city that's been leveled. They're trying to rebuild the temple, rebuild their homes. They don't have a terrific amount of resources. And they get discouraged. And they, they, start, they start doubting whether they can pull this off. Can, can we accomplish this task? There's, the, there's this mountain of work to do in front of us. There's this mountain of obstacles. There are the, the people who live in the area are opposed to what they're doing and trying to hinder them at every chance. They're even threatening them physically at times. And they feel overwhelmed, and Zechariah, in the midst of that, receives a vision in chapter 4, and we, we won't go all the way through that vision because there's a lot to it, but what I want you to focus in on is the central message that God gives Zechariah to give these people. Here it is. This is the word of Yahweh to Zerubbabel. He's the one that's been put in charge of the rebuilding. Not by might. Not by power. But by my spirit, says Yahweh of armies. You catch what he's saying there? It's not going to be your strength. It's not going to be your power that accomplishes this. It's going to be the spirit of God. And he goes on to say this that relates to our passage. Who are you, O great mountain? He personifies the obstacles there that they're facing as a mountain. Who are you, great mountain? What's the big deal with you? That's what he's saying. Before Zerubbabel, you shall become a plain. You're going to get leveled because the Spirit is going to level you. And Zerubbabel is going to be able to accomplish what I gave him to do. The extending of God's kingdom on earth is an impossible task from a human point of view. Right? 
In fact, we could say that that the mere entrance of anyone into the kingdom of God is an impossibility. How does a human being get into the kingdom of God? Remember the rich young ruler comes to Jesus? What must I do to inherit eternal life? How can I get the ticket in? Jesus' answer can boil it down to, well, just leave everything and follow me and you're, you're in like Flynn. And you remember the response? The response of many in our affluent society? It goes away sad. Gee, I'm really sorry I can't do that. That would require an adjustment in my lifestyle. I don't think I wanted to do that. I'd have to spend less money on myself? Uh, that'd be a hard one to do. I have to think of others and consider that what you've given me is a mere stewardship that I'm supposed to use for your glory? Nah, can't do that. Jesus says, as he watches that young man walk away, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now, don't go thinking that, as has been suggested, <laughs> that there was this one gate in Jerusalem, and it was called the eye of the needle, and, you know, if you, if you really scrunch down, you could get a camel through that. No, that's not what he's saying. <laughs> he's saying it's impossible. He's using a hyperbole here to emphasize it's impossible. And the disciples understand that. This is one of the, one of the occasions where they do get it. And they say, well, who, who's going to get in then? I mean, we thought the rich people, we thought the people that were, were well off, we thought that meant God was blessing them. And if they can't get in, who can? And here's Jesus' reply. With man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. I think that's what Jesus is saying in our text, don't you? It is impossible for sinners to know freedom from their sin and guilt through their own efforts and will. But God, in his beloved Son, has not only made possible the impossible, he has guaranteed it. He is guaranteed it by his promise. Remember the words of Gabriel to Mary when she asked, you know, how is it, how is it to be that I'm, I'm to become uh, pregnant, I'm to bear the Son of the Most High? Remember Gabriel, Gabriel's response? Nothing will be impossible with God. He's going to do it. Yet at the same time, I think we'd have to say that for your salvation by faith, for your salvation, if you're saved, if you've come to faith in Christ, for your salvation, there was an impossibility to be experienced by God. There was something that was impossible for him to do if he's going to save you. 
Jesus prayed in Gethsemane, My Father, my Father, the one whom he had heard say, This is my beloved Son, this is my loved Son, this is the one I find my pleasure in. My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Your salvation through faith is impossible except Jesus, God's Son, drink the cup of God's wrath against your sin. You escape from the eternal hell that you deserve. That's impossible unless Christ suffered divine judgment in your place. Your resurrection and eternal joy are impossible unless God clothes you in the righteousness of his holy son who died in your place. But the gospel that we preach is that God has done exactly that. By his sovereign will and work in Christ Jesus, he has guaranteed to you his covenant promises of eternal life in union with Christ. He has done all that is necessary, all his justice requires for your salvation and eternal glory, and you receive it with a faith the size of a mustard seed. That's your part. And with that small faith, you have all you need to enjoy the forgiveness of your sin as you make confession to him. With that small faith, you have all that you need to make glorifying him the ultimate purpose of your life on this earth. In fact, your tiny mustard seed of faith, that faith that he has awakened in you, in your heart, by his spirit, can become a great faith because you place that faith in a great God. In you and by faith, your great God and Savior can move mountains to further his kingdom and build his church. Your mustard seed of faith can bear fruit and faithful living in every circumstance so that you know contentment in Christ now that is the key to joy in eternity to come. Listen to what Paul says in closing, Philippians chapter 4. I rejoice greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. And we think, well, he's happy because he's been provided for. He's got some physical relief. He's suffering in prison and he's gotten some relief. It must be because of his good circumstances. But he goes on to say this, not that I am speaking of being in need. For I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. I'm abounding at this moment because of your gift. But I want you to be assured that my faith's not in you. My contentment doesn't rest on my earthly circumstances. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him 
who strengthens me. That's the context for that promise. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. That's not your slogan for winning a ball game or being a success in business. That is the attitude of faith in the midst of trial and difficulty. You face mountains in your life. Some of them are created by your own doing. Some of them are because of you live in a fallen world. Some of them are imposed upon you by other people. You face mountains in this fallen world, and you are a sinner in this fallen world. But Jesus' promise is that with that faith in him, the size of a mustard seed, you can do anything that he calls you to do. And he will not only save you, he will help you grow in faith, and he will take you all the way to the end into his presence. And he can use you to further his kingdom here on this earth. The work of your hands, the work of your mind, through your witness, through your love that you show to others in the body of Christ. You can do all things through faith in the one who has saved you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, none of us knows exactly what you're going to call us to. You may be calling us to a hard work. You may be calling us to walk through a hard time. Uh, you, may be, you may be giving us in the future a great opportunity uh, to, to do something significant, maybe even something that, that will really be impressive and, and beyond our ability. We, we don't know where you're going to lead us, Lord, but we know what we need for every circumstance, and that is this faith that's the size of a mustard seed. So we pray, Lord, that you would, that you would give us that faith. I pray if, if there is anyone who's listening to this scripture today, who has not placed their faith in you and in you alone. I pray that you would lead them to do that. They would know that joy of belonging to you and living a, a life of faith with you. And I pray that you would help those of us who have come to faith at some point through your Holy Spirit to be faithful and in the places where you've called us to be as parents, as children, as students, as workers, as bosses. In whatever circumstances, Lord, help us to live faithful lives that will further your kingdom and bring you glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.